Podcasts like this one take a lot of time and resources to create. To help cover some of those costs, you'll hear some ads during this episode. For an ad-free experience, click the link in the description and you'll get access to this and three other Stuff True Crime podcasts ad-free for about the price of a cup of coffee. And you'll be helping us make more great podcasts like this one. I regard Martin Van Banen as a kind of Inspector Javert in uh, Les Miserables, chasing Bane down through the ages. This has been an incredibly difficult and complicated case for all involved. He started saying black hands, that they were taking them away. Black hands. The Crown has agreed to make an ex gratia payment of $925,000. The fact of the matter is, I am innocent. You know, there's nothing else that I have to say. I'm journalist Martin Van Banen. I wrote the 10-part podcast series Black Hands about the fatal 1994 shootings of five members of the Bain family. The Stuff series, produced with Tandem Studios, has been downloaded nearly two and a half million times, and due to the enormous interest, we have recorded another episode as a sort of postscript. In this episode, we'll look at some recent developments on the case and David Bain's four-year bid to get compensation for what he alleges was his wrongful 13-year imprisonment for the murders. The controversial process resulted in all the arguments about the case being relitigated until a stark verdict in 2015 that David had failed to prove he was innocent. But let's fast forward to 2017, which has been busy with Bain news. First came a change of name. 45-year-old David Bain became, thanks to deed poll, William David Cullen Davies. For the sake of clarity, we will continue to call him David Bain. The new surname comes from his wife Liz, a primary school teacher and the daughter of one of David's most ardent supporters. In December 2014, Liz and David had a baby son. The second development concerned the 200 or so exhibits used in the two trials David faced. Police disposed of the exhibits this year with the items going back to their rightful owners. The rifle used in the shootings belonged to David, but as he did not have a current firearms licence, his friend Joe Karam stepped into the breach and took possession of the weapon. He hasn't said what he intends to do with it. I must admit I was surprised when David applied for compensation about a year after his retrial. I thought he would fade into the background and count his lucky stars that he had been found not guilty. Then again, he had spent 13 years in jail for crimes that in the eyes of the law he did not commit. The stakes were high. If he succeeded, he was looking at a payment of at least several million dollars. However, the bid was always going to reignite the controversy over the case, as according to cabinet rules, David had to prove his innocence on the probabilities. This is the standard of proof in civil trials. The Minister of Justice at the time, Simon Power, asked former Canadian Supreme Court Judge Ian Binney, then 73, to conduct an investigation. Justice Binney had spent 13 years on Canada's highest court. He spent many months poring over the evidence and interviewing the key police detectives 
and David Bain himself. By the end of August 2012, his report was ready. He concluded David was an innocent man, not beyond reasonable doubt, but on the lowest standard of balance of probabilities. In other words, it was more probable than not, Justice Binney said, that David's father, Robin, had shot his family and not David. The report would come in for some scathing criticism, but more on that later. As it happened, Justice Binney returned to New Zealand in August to speak at the New Zealand Criminal Bar Association Conference in Auckland. He appeared on Radio New Zealand's renowned Kim Hill Show, and she naturally asked him about black hands. He made a number of interesting comments, which require some response. We'll go through his comments in the order in which they came out in Kim Hill's programme. I regard uh, the title Black Hand as a kind of uh, code for uh, David Bain is crazy because the black hand is one of the images the police relied on to show that David Bain uh, was uh, verged on uh, insane. I think the fact David mentioned the phrase several times in different contexts after the shootings was abnormal, perhaps manipulative and certainly relevant to the question of whether David was the shooter. In my view, the police used the evidence to show not so much that David was insane, but that he was obviously struggling with something, and it may have been a feeling of guilt over having shot his family. He's a a very capable journalist, but he's one of these on the one hand, on the other hand, but it always winds up against uh, uh, David Bain. In his extensive report, Justice Binney also considers both sides of the argument, but never once winds up agreeing with the Crown on a single important point. He also hasn't listened to black hands, so is clearly at a disadvantage. Even uh, Ian Callanan did not uh, go as far as, uh, uh, it seems to me, Martin Van Bainen uh, goes. Justice Callanan was the former Australian High Court judge who was tasked with conducting the second inquiry into David Bain's bid for compensation once Justice Binney's report was rejected. Justice Callanan was asked a very specific question and was scrupulous in not going beyond it. He did not have the benefit of reading the transcript from David's first trial and did not have the advantage of seeing the witnesses in the second trial. Nor did he see all of the material I uncovered or reviewed, including statements from the police file. For Justice Binney to criticise a journalist for going further than a judge who is acting under the constraints of a narrow government inquiry is not exactly an apple against apples comparison. I gather that there's some issue in the programme about a tattoo and some ladies come forward and say, oh, well, the tattoo wasn't uh, applied when David Bain said it was. Well, you know, people keep coming out of the woodwork. Well, you're assuming uh, uh, the truth of this uh, uh, individual who's come forward uh, to contradict him. I don't know whether you can make that assumption. The lady in question is Dunedin woman Helen Bennett and the fact she did David's tattoo in the week before the killings is irrefutable. She made a statement to the police soon after the shootings and banked the cheque David used to pay the $80 fee. David has exactly the tattoo she said she administered. She did not come forward seeking notoriety. I found her and asked her to be in the podcast. David clearly misled Justice Binney 
by saying he got the tattoo when he was feeling bad just after his dog was taken away by the council and euthanized. The council records show exactly when the dog was removed and it was 18 months before the shootings. The question Justice Binney should be asking is why should David want to hide the fact he got a tattoo only days before his family was shot? It's ironic Justice Binney should criticise people for coming forward with information about the case. Many of David's witnesses at the second trial did exactly that. The one that I found most uh, incredible is that there was a uh, correctional officer called Thomas Samuel who uh, turned up at the 2009 trial and said, well, he had examined uh, David Bain at the uh, prison uh, at the time uh, David Bain was uh, admitted, and there were claw marks on his chest, uh, which he described as uh, uh, consistent with being grabbed in this death struggle with uh, uh, Stephen. Well, uh, David Bain had just before that uh, uh, encounter with Mr. Samuels been examined by the uh, police uh, doctor, Dr. Pride, who was nothing if not meticulous in his examination to David Bain to think that uh, Dr. Pride would have missed all of these uh, scratches and gougings that uh, Samuel reported uh, defies belief. Tom Samuel strip-searched David Bain when he was processed on his remand to Dunedin Prison four days after the shootings. I hate to sound pedantic, but Samuel said no more that he saw scratch marks and bruising around David's right shoulder. He did not use the word death struggle or the word gouging. He said it looked like David had been clawed or grabbed through clothing. Justice Binney neglects to mention that another witness said David showed her the marks on his chest on the Wednesday night after the Monday shootings and said he told her he didn't know how he got them. This witness even drew a diagram for the police. Justice Binney is also placing too much faith in Dr Pride, who was treating David as a victim rather than a suspect and may not have seen him with his T-shirt off. Dr Pride also missed a clear bruise on David's forehead just under his hairline. He saw three bruises on David's face but missed the fourth one, which can clearly be seen on a photograph taken at the time. The green jersey, as you know, is a highly contentious issue. Uh, uh, it uh, belonged to uh, Robin Bain. He's five foot ten. David is six foot four. Uh, it uh, is hard to believe that David could wear uh, his father's sweater. Justice Binney neglects to mention that David first said on two occasions that the jersey belonged to his sister Arawa. He then changed his story to say the jersey belonged to his father and that Robin had worn it over the weekend before the shootings. And was it really so small that David would not have considered wearing it in the shootings? David tried it on during his first trial and it was a tight fit, but that may have been because he had put on weight in jail. Justice Callanan went through an interesting exercise when he inspected the exhibits in the case on a visit to Christchurch. He asked for an accurate comparison be made between the jersey and David's anorak, which, he figured, fitted more loosely than a jersey. He also noticed the jersey was loose to the touch and stretchy. The measurement showed the jersey was five centimetres shorter in length than the anorak and seven centimetres shorter than the sleeves. That's a good question. Why wouldn't he change his clothes uh 
uh, if he was uh, guilty. Again, Justice Binney seems to be bending over backwards, in my view, to help David's case, almost like a defence lawyer. When police arrived at the house on the morning of the murders, David was wearing a T-shirt with Stephen's blood on the front and back lower hems and on the back shoulder. A stain on his shorts around the crotch region was also Stephen's blood. Both David's socks were blood-stained with blood from Stephen. The stains were small and unobtrusive. If David was the killer, he would most likely have been wearing the green jersey over the T-shirt and also a long pair of track pants over his shorts. He would have changed those outer clothes before going on the run and put them in the washing machine. That left him wearing the T-shirt and his shorts, and he then donned another garment to do the paper round. The defence says, and Justice Binney agrees, that the blood on David's clothes came from innocent transfer when he went around the house in a daze, finding the bodies. If that is true, it's strange that so little blood was found on David and that his hands were perfectly clear of blood. For instance, if he knelt over a body to get the blood on his crotch, how come there is not more blood on his shorts? There could be numerous reasons why David didn't change the clothes he was found in. One obvious one is that he didn't realise just how much of Stephen's blood he had on his clothes, because none of it was apparent, and secondly, he probably never envisaged the extent of the police investigation and the blood testing that would be carried out. Justice Binney also seems to assume that if David was guilty in trying to avoid detection, he would never have made the mistakes he appears to have made. He doesn't seem to consider the possibility that David just simply screwed up. If David killed his family and had the horrific fight with Stephen and had to confront his fully awake sister Arawa, you might expect some mistakes and oversights to creep in. Podcasts like this one take a lot of time and resources to create. To help cover some of those costs, you'll hear some ads during this episode. For an ad-free experience, click the link in the description and you'll get access to this and three other Stuff True Crime podcasts ad-free for about the price of a cup of coffee. And you'll be helping us make more great podcasts like this one. Another issue is that David Bain suggested to you that the father... Robin was going to live with them all in this new house or refuge that they were going to build. And this was, according to Martin Van Banen, clearly not the case. It was a terribly dysfunctional family. David hated his father, declared his hate for his father, and there was no way that the father was included in the future plans. Do you feel, in retrospect, as if you were misled in any way? Uh, No, I don't think so uh, on that point. Look, uh, if you uh, go through David Bain's uh, uh, testimony, either at the trial or when he spoke to me, uh, certainly you can point out to some sort of uh, uh, inconsistencies. But I draw the opposite conclusion uh, on this question of Robin and the new house. I think that if uh, David Bain was pushing uh, the blame onto his father, he would have emphasized the father's estrangement uh, from the family, uh, his uh, bitter relations uh, with his wife, 
the fact he was uh, obliged to live outside his own house uh, in a caravan uh, when Robin was the only breadwinner uh, in the family. And if uh, you were David and you were trying to push the blame onto the father, uh, you would say uh, this shows that Robin had every reason uh, uh, to murder the family because he had been cast out and horrendously treated by the family. The fact David says, no, no, this is not true, that uh, my father uh, had not been cast out, uh, although he was living in this uh, trailer, uh, nullifies what would otherwise be exculpatory evidence by David. Well, let's be clear on this. David told Justice Binney in his interview in 2012 that the refuge plan definitely had a place for Robin. But at his trial in 1995, he said his father was not wanted and was not part of the plan. This is in black and white in the transcripts. Other witnesses also confirmed David and his mother did not want Robin in the new house. I'm not sure it could be any clearer. David has completely changed his story, but Justice Binney sticks to his theory that David would have skewed his answers to paint his father as an outcast if he was wanting to pull the wool over his eyes. This strikes me as naive. By the time Justice Binney interviewed David, he knew it was a better look for him, in my view, to hold back on putting the boot into his father. And even then, he slips up occasionally. In addition, the fact Robin was estranged from his wife and consigned to the caravan was well and truly established by the evidence, so David didn't need to pursue that line in front of Justice Binney at all. This is covered in episode 9 of Black Hands, but I've been through the transcript of Justice Binney's interview with David again and have identified at least 10 occasions when David changed his story from previous accounts in a way that was misleading to the judge. I don't need to tell Justice Binney that this is a circumstantial case where inconsistency should be grounds to make an interviewer very suspicious. See, the problem with uh, Martin Van Banen is that he gets into all this detail, but he never steps back and asks himself why. You know, why is all this happening? Why, do, why would David uh, uh, murder his uh, family? There was absolutely zero uh, evidence of any mental uh, instability, uh, uh, whereas Robin, you know, one way or another, had some problems. Uh, I, I, did, I found in my report, I didn't think the evidence was strong enough to really draw conclusions one way uh, or the other. But nobody's ever answered this question, why, David? Why would he do it? If Justice Binney had listened to the podcast, he would have realised a whole episode is devoted to motives for Robin and David. Justice Binney seems to think that since psychiatrists have declared David sane, he can't have been the killer, because the killer had to be crazy. Again, that's a pretty naive view in my opinion. By the time psychiatrists were involved, David had every incentive to conceal anything that might be of interest to the doctors. Plenty of material, both from the trials and that I have unearthed, shows some very unusual behaviour by David. According to interviews I have done, Margaret was worried about his hallucinations. Ara was worried about him having a rifle and Laniat was scared of him and didn't want to go to a family meeting, he called. Lots of killers present a stable, friendly face to the world, and to doctors. Justice Spinney should know this, 
We have no way of knowing what was going through David's mind. We don't know what happened on the Sunday night before the murders. We don't know why David got a tattoo in the week of the shootings and then misled Justice Binney about it. But we do know he was very close to his mother. He was fully on board with her grand, impractical scheme to build the retreat centre and he wanted his father out. We know the family life was chaotic, with Satan a major factor in his mother's thinking. We know David certainly wasn't the fun-loving chap, aloof from the problems in his family that he said he was. When you say that uh, Robin had no history of uh, 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 violence and so on, I remember that uh, when they searched the the, uh, caravan that Robin slept in, although so far as David knew, uh, he, uh, David was the only one who knew the location of the spare key to the trigger lock on the uh, uh, 22 uh, Winchester. Uh, the police found a number of spent shells in uh, Robin's uh, uh, caravan, some live ammunition, I think a round or two, a, a, a small amount. So a lot was going on in uh, Robin's life that uh, David was not uh, familiar with. Again, with respect, this is drawing a long bow indeed. How does having 20 empty shells in his caravan show Robin had a history of violence? We know Robin helped David sight his rifle, and they used a lot of bullets to do so. They were using a friendly farmer's property, and Robin probably just picked up the shells afterwards and kept them. He was a shocking hoarder and never threw anything away. David and Stephen also shot possums on their section at 65 Every Street. Robin might well have picked up the shells the boys had left on the ground. Called Robin a diminutive and relatively emaciated, he was described as looking like a cadaver in the latter stages of his life. Could he have wrestled Stephen with the strength it would have required to subdue him? Uh, well, I think you, you look at it the other way around. Uh, I mean, my answer is to your question is yes. But when you look at it the other way around, you've got Stephen, who I think was 14 years old at the time. Uh, you've got a 22-year-old older brother who towers over Stephen. I can't imagine it would have been much of a fight uh, if David had taken Stephen, who uh, you know, was awoken from his uh, sleep, uh, and as the crime scene shows, there was a protracted and bloody fight. Uh, this is not typical of a contest between a big 22-year-old and a small adolescent uh, uh, kid of, of 14. It seems to be there's a much more even match uh, between uh, Robin, 5 foot 10, uh, and, and Stephen. Again, there are plenty of arguments the other way. We know from his teacher that Stephen stood up for himself and was stroppy. He was a brave kid. David, on the other hand, was bullied, teased and isolated during his first year at school in Dunedin. He was never a fighter, as his prison mates will attest. He was a lot taller than Stephen, but Justice Binney seems to be judging David, whom he describes as muscular, as he saw him in 2012, rather than what David was like in 1994. Again, Justice Binney seems to be straining to find a favourable interpretation for David when others, just as strong, are available. 
What do you think happened to that 20 minutes? Well, I think the explanation given by the psychologists who examined him, uh, Dr. Mullen and Dr. Uh, Brinded, uh, is that uh, he went into a state of shock, and uh, uh, not su- not uh, surprisingly. Uh, I don't uh, have any uh, explanation to add to that. You know, the, 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 the police initially said, well... Uh, it's obvious uh, that uh, David came back from his uh, paper route and in the 20 minutes uh, shot everybody, murdered everybody, and then uh, and then called uh, uh, the police, or uh, they called 111. So, uh, you know, the 20 minutes has been a, a curious part of this case uh, from the beginning. It certainly has. Just to recap, by the most favourable timing for David, he was home at 6.45 a.m., from his paper round. He did not make the 111 call until nine minutes past seven. He says he spent the first five minutes or so on his return home putting the washing on and washing his hands. So that leaves 20 minutes. The Crown scenario, and it was only one theory, was that David shot his mother and three siblings before going out on his paper round. Then after the round, he waited in the computer room for his father to come in from the caravan and then shot him. And don't forget, David wasn't seeing well because he didn't have either his own glasses or the glasses found damaged in his bedroom. He had to be careful with shooting his father. He could not afford to have to shoot him twice as he wanted to make it look like suicide. So he had to be in place when his father came into the house and that probably meant waiting for some time. The family of a Melton teenager who died six years ago are, for the first time, appealing for further information about the girl's death. If I could go back now knowing what I know now, they'd be dead. Yeah, I'd be in jail. I'm Ryan Wolfe, and in season four of my investigative true crime podcast, Guilt, I travelled to Melbourne, Australia, to investigate the mysterious death of 16-year-old Alana Cecil and uncover a shocking case of sex, exploitation, drugs and possibly murder, you'll find guilt on all good podcast platforms. And she got stolen away from me. And are those culprits who did it? I want to catch them. I want to get them. And they know who they are. And I won't won't ever give up. After shooting Robin, David then had to set up the rifle and magazine so it looked as though his father was the killer, wash his hands, and get ready to make the phone call. If he was in shock, it might well have been from realising exactly what he had done. To walk around a house in shock for 20 minutes before calling for help is a long time, especially with a telephone at hand. No wonder the police expected some answers, and David didn't have them. No one knows exactly what happened in the house that morning. Just as Binny's job was not to find the most favourable interpretation of the facts for David, it was David's job to prove to Justice Binney he was probably innocent. You know, the obvious thing for David to have done if he was uh, the killer, uh, assuming that he went out on his paper route wearing these uh, clothes with uh, blood all over them, which is, to me, uh, hard to believe, uh, that, uh, you know, when he came back, uh, if he was trying to conceal his involvement, why wouldn't he wash his own clothes? You know, he put the rest of the stuff in the washing machine. 
Why wouldn't he, he uh, clean his, his own clothes that had blood on them when the police found him? So, again, when you stand back, there's so much that David could have done in the 20 minutes to exonerate himself or at least to muddy the tracks so the police would have a lot more difficulty uh, in going after him. And yet he didn't. Why didn't he? As already mentioned, David did not have blood all over him. If he killed four of the family before the paper run, he put the green jersey and probably some tracksuit pants in the wash before he left the house and turned the washing machine on. That would explain why the washing machine wasn't heard going when police arrived, because the cycle would have finished. I've already explained why David might not have had time to muddy his tracks. And we have only David's word that he didn't. I have some sympathy for Justice Binney because the criticism he faced must be humiliating for an international jurist of his standing. The report he produced is thorough, cogent and a pleasure to read. But that doesn't mean he can't be entirely wrong. It's worth going back to the report to look at exactly why he found David innocent on the balance of probabilities. The two major factors in Justice Binney's reasoning were sock prints in the house and his impression David was a credible witness. Let's just look quickly at the sock print evidence again. These were bloody sock prints made by a right foot discovered in the Bain house which were invisible to the naked eye. They were only visible when sprayed with the chemical luminol, which reacts with blood and gives off a blue glow in the dark. And they weren't all over the house. There were six grouped in a small space around Margaret's and Laniette's bedrooms and the hallway. Only a few seemed to show the whole foot, and one of those was measured at 280 millimetres. The presence of the sock prints, if David made them, was not surprising, since he had recovered a memory of going around the house to find his family dead and could have stepped on bloody carpet in Stephen's room and then carried on making some bloody sock prints. When he was found by police on the morning of the shootings, both his socks had blood on them, but one of his socks had a lot more than the other, which might explain only the right foot registering on the carpet. The blood on the socks was Stephen's. So David's case was not damaged if his defence accepted they were his sock prints, because in some ways they reinforced his story of going around the house after his paper round and finding his family. Of course, they also made sense if he was the killer. But the footprints had huge potential for the defence. If the Bain camp could show the prints had been made by Robin, that was the end of the Crown case, which could not accommodate Robin being in the place where the prints were grouped. If the prints were Robin's, it also meant he must have changed his clothes after shooting the family, but before shooting himself, because when he was found, he had no blood on his socks. The defence knew it was always going to struggle with the scenario of a deranged man who had just shot his family, then changing into his tatty old clothes and woolly hat to shoot himself. For various reasons, Justice Binney found the sock prints were on the balance of probabilities made by Robin, a very important starting point for his consideration, because it meant he had found that on just one item of evidence, that Robin, not David, was probably the killer. Justice Binney then looked for any evidence that could knock the sock print evidence off its perch. In short, 
he didn't find any that caused him enough concern to dislodge his initial finding. In my view, Binney's confidence in his sock print finding is just about inexplicable. As mentioned, the bloody sock print was measured at 280 millimetres. Or to be more accurate, what was measured was the strongest luminescence given off by the blood in the sock print. The measurement was done late at night and none too accurately. Binney took comfort from scientific testing done by both the Crown and the Defence. Both scientific camps took a model with a sock-clad foot, stood him in a tray of pig's blood, soaked the sock, walked the foot until no blood could be seen by the naked eye, sprayed luminol on the invisible prints, and measured the luminescence. The testing showed a foot like David Baines, which was 300 millimetres long, would be more likely to leave a print over 300 millimetres if a complete print was left. Robin's foot was 270 millimetres long. As I said in episode 7 of Black Hands, it seems puzzling to me that much weight could be given to the testing when it bears little resemblance to what occurred in the Bain house. We know the shooter did not stand in a tray of blood before making the prints. We know none of the prints were visible to the naked eye, and we know the prints fizzled out very quickly. The testers also had no way of knowing how the killer walked or stood or whether they accurately replicated the surface on which the prints were left, or even the socks. Justice Binney in his report does address that point as in this passage read by an actor. This is true, but the experiments performed took this into account by making many repetitions of the footprint without replenishing the blood, thereby creating progressively lighter intensities of bloodiness. By the time the luminol was applied, there was so little blood on the test socks that the prints were invisible to the naked eye. That's all very well, but the crucial difference is still the fact that the soles of the socks used in the experiments were entirely soaked in blood by the model standing in a tray of blood. And Justice Binney's reasoning doesn't take into account all the other variables. Even the experiments showed that a 300mm foot could leave a shorter print which showed pretty much the whole foot. Don't forget, 20 millimetres is not much longer than a thumbnail. Binney also said his finding on the sock prints was reinforced by the fact David's running shoes did not have any blood on them. But he doesn't consider whether this could have been due to David changing his socks before going on his paper run. Neither does Justice Binney consider the point that the socks that made the prints had so little blood on them, the prints petered out very quickly. It seems quite possible there was simply not enough blood left on the socks to leave any material behind in the shoes. There's also the possibility that David might not have worn the running shoes he said he wore on the paper round. In one of his statements, he said he took off his running shoes by his wardrobe. They were in fact some distance away by his bed. Justice Binney thought that if the footprint evidence was good enough to help convict David, it was good enough to exonerate him. But this is like saying flawed evidence can be transformed into good evidence depending on how it is used. The judge did review some of the items already mentioned in previous episodes of Black Hands, which could be seen as pointing to David as the culprit. Although some raised concerns, none was strong enough to overcome his initial finding 
of innocence on the footprint issue. That meant discounting things like David's bloody fingerprints on the blood-spattered rifle, Stephen's blood on his socks, shorts, and on at least three separate places on his T-shirt, a lens discovered in Stephen's room from damaged glasses found in David's room, several injuries to David's head and leg, and probably his chest, and David hearing his sister gurgling when she would, in all likelihood, have been dead. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. The spot of Stephen's blood on the crotch of David's shorts clearly worried Justice Binney. An actor reads the relevant passage from the report. The question is whether the concern created by this item of information has enough force to displace the other elements of proof that tilt the balance of favour of factual innocence. I do not think that it does. Accordingly, while of concern to me, I conclude in the end that the clothing evidence does not undermine David Bain's claim to innocence. As stated, the bloodstains on the clothing are not explained beyond a reasonable doubt, but I am satisfied on a balance of probabilities that the innocent explanation is more likely than not to be correct. Justice Binney was also prepared to accept that Robin wore David's gloves during the shootings, must have changed his clothes after killing the family and before shooting himself, fought Stephen in a desperate struggle without getting hardly a scratch, wrote a cryptic suicide note on the computer, shot himself in a highly unusual way, killed the family on a full bladder, handled the rifle extensively in the shootings but did not leave any fingerprints, shot himself in the head without getting any of his own blood on the rifle, and somehow managed to land on the floor after his suicide with his right hand right next to a magazine on its narrow, concave edge. It never seemed to occur to Justice Binney that when all the evidence potentially pointing to David was viewed as a whole, it might be thought that such evidence represented an incredible coincidence if David was innocent. As mentioned, Another significant factor for Justice Binney was that he judged David to be a credible witness. I have already explained why I don't think David is a reliable witness. Justice Binney was clearly appalled by the police investigation of the case, but given his scathing comments about the New Zealand police, it was ironic he could make a glaring error himself about an important bit of evidence which other judges had found quite convincing. It concerned the 10-shot magazine for the rifle used to shoot the family. The magazine was found right next to Robin's right hand as he lay dead and was standing on its narrow, concave edge. Most investigations or inquiries into the case found this highly unusual because first, it just looked too convenient for Robin, having slumped from the fatal shot to the head, to fall with his right hand right next to the magazine. And second because the magazine was on its edge. 
if Robin had discarded the magazine just before he shot himself, why would he have placed it so carefully? Just as Benny said, he didn't find it unusual because Robin needed to change magazines due to the 10-shot magazine being empty. So he put the magazine on the floor and inserted the 5-shot magazine found in the murder weapon. In fact, the 10-shot magazine was not empty. It contained three bullets, so Robin didn't need to change magazines at all to deliver the final shot to himself. Now, everyone who has examined the Bain case makes mistakes. I'm sure I've made mistakes too, but that's a serious error by a very senior judge. In any event, Justice Minister Judith Collins wasn't happy with Justice Binney's report and asked for it to be reviewed by former High Court Judge Dr Robert Fisher. If Collins was looking for someone to confirm her view that Justice Binney had got it terribly wrong, Fisher did not disappoint. Just before Christmas in 2012, he delivered his verdict, saying errors in Justice Binney's report made it unsafe to rely on. Fisher was mainly concerned about two things in Justice Binney's report. The first was, he said, that Justice Binney had adopted the wrong legal test to review the evidence in the case. And just to be clear, all excerpts from Fisher's report are read by an actor. He said, In the present case, the first step was to take each item of evidence, decide whether it had any bearing on the likelihood that either Robin or David was the culprit, and if so, assign to that item its appropriate probative force. Binny J did not take that approach. His approach was to determine whether each time of evidence in isolation was established on the balance of probabilities. If not, it was discarded from further consideration. In his eyes, it came down to a binary choice between the two. What Justice Binney should have done, according to Fisher, was bring the probabilities test into action only in considering whether on the evidence as a whole, David had succeeded in showing he was innocent. Justice Binney's skewed approach was always going to favour David, Fisher said. It meant that items like Stephen's bloodstains on David's clothing, his broken glasses and his fingerprints on the rifle were unworthy of further consideration once Binney had decided they failed his probabilities test. At its heart, the process followed by Binney J was to arrive at a provisional conclusion based on a single item of evidence followed by serial testing of that conclusion against some but not all the other items of evidence. The approach is contrary to legal and mathematical principle. The first result of that flawed approach was that Binny J excluded from further consideration a great deal of evidence that most people would have regarded as highly relevant. Secondly, the way in which Binny J approached the cumulative significance of all the evidence in combination seriously skewed the exercise towards an innocence outcome. Fisher's other main beef was that Justice Binney gave David's statements too much credibility. Although Justice Binney did query David's claim he had not worn his mother's glasses during the weekend, for the most part he accepted David's account without question. Fisher said, It had increasingly been recognised that contrary to their own expectations, judges and juries actually have little or no ability to assess credibility through observing a witness's demeanour. 
they cannot tell when a witness is lying. Most decision-makers would look for corroborating evidence before accepting statements from a suspect. There are no overt signs of caution or scepticism in Binny Jay's approach to David Bain's evidence. Fisher thought Justice Binney also made too much of admissions or actions by David, which he thought would be surprising if David was guilty. For instance, Justice Binney thought it inherently implausible that David would go on his paper run, leaving four dead bodies in the house. And why would David be wearing clothes with Stephen's blood on them if he wanted to escape detection? But Fisher said, Faced with incriminating admissions or oversights by their clients, defence counsel routinely argue that if their clients had been guilty, they would not have been so silly as to make the admissions or oversights in the first place. Viewing events with the benefit of hindsight, unlimited time for consideration and adrenaline-free, one can, with clarity, see that a guilty person would have been unwise to act in the way that this suspect has acted. And it is true that an innocent person could make a seemingly incriminating admission or leave an apparently incriminating clue in circumstances where a guilty person would have had the foresight to cover their tracks. Experience suggests, however, that in practice, guilty people do make mistakes. Acting under huge stress and often in extreme haste, even the most hardened criminal lowers their guard. Nor is it unknown for manipulative suspects to make deliberate concessions in non-critical areas in order to promote an appearance of openness and reasonableness. Hi, Michael Wright here. If you're enjoying Black Hands, I think you might like a new true crime podcast from Stuff, hosted by me, Michael Wright, and Shannon Redstall. It's called The Lost Boy, The Disappearance of Mike Zhao Beckenridge. Justice Binney hit back in an email from Switzerland to Judith Collins's office. He had been sent Fisher's report and asked if he had any comments. He certainly did. He accused Collins of already making up her mind before Fisher's report and that its only function was to provide a rationale for a ministerial decision already taken. He defended his reliance on the footprint evidence, saying it was the crucial issue because the Crown had conceded that the footprints were made by the killer. Justice Binney's responses are read here by an actor. Yet Mr Fisher thinks this should just be bundled up with everything else as if the Crown's admission had never been made. At the end of the day, Mr Fisher's complaint is that I did not neatly divide my analysis into two neat little stages. He is advocating a complete triumph of form over substance. I disagree. What is important here is the substance. He said he would have failed the parties if he had not indicated where he stood on each of the items of evidence. They were entitled to know, for example, how I viewed the gun fingerprint evidence, and I told them. As far as David's credibility was concerned, it was true he relied on information sourced from David, but so had the police and the Crown, he said. I had to decide whether I believed him or not. I completed my examination of the record and the analysis of the other evidence before I interviewed David Bain. Mr Fisher explains that the modern approach is to place greater weight on other considerations, 
This is exactly the approach I took. As to his approach, Justice Binney said Fisher had based his methodology on criminal cases when he was asked to conduct an informal inquiry with a great deal of flexibility and discretion to the accusation that he had not weighed up the cumulative effect of the evidence said to point to David as the killer, Justice Binney said he had acted strictly in accordance with the formula he had set out and Fisher agreed with. His allegation is that I didn't do what I said I did. This is just wrong. I did what I said I did. Otherwise, I wouldn't claim to have done it. Moreover, he concedes that in this weighing up exercise, some factors will be given more weight than others. That is precisely the path I followed. I found the physical evidence compelling. The psychological and propensity evidence of no help. Mr Fisher considers that I should have included in the weighing up the psychological and propensity evidence, even though I considered it of no value. This shows the impracticality of his academic model. By January 2013, David and his legal team had filed proceedings to challenge the way Collins had conducted the compensation process. They alleged Collins had breached David's rights, acted in bad faith, abused her power, and acted in a biased, unreasonable, and predetermined manner. Before the full case could be heard, the Bain camp did a deal with new Justice Minister Amy Adams, whereby the government would order a new compensation inquiry and they would discontinue their judicial review proceedings. In March 2015, Adams appointed former Australian High Court Judge Ian Callanan, then aged 78, to conduct the new inquiry. Everyone waited with bated breath for Justice Callanan's report. When it came, it was bad news for David. Justice Callanan decided David had not satisfied him that it was more probable than not he was innocent. He treated the case like a civil case. It was up to David to show him he was innocent, and he started by revising David's strongest arguments. I'm just going to deal with the main ones, which briefly were that David was still on his paper round when the computer was switched on for the shooter to write the suicide note, sorry, you are the only one who deserved to stay. And that sock prints were made by Robin, which meant he was the shooter, and that blood on Robin's hands and signs of injury to his hands were conclusive of David's innocence. Justice Callanan found against David on just about every point. When he didn't, he found the evidence was not persuasive either way. A quality podcast on a tragedy that touched many. White silence. An airliner takes off from Auckland Airport on a sightseeing trip to Antarctica. A few hours later, all 257 people on board are dead. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for White Silence. The evidence about the footprints that Justice Binney found so powerful raised more questions than it answered, Justice Callanan said in words now read by an actor. Why were there no footprints of a left foot? How could it possibly be that the same foot could make two footprints of such different sizes, that is to say a difference of 40 millimetres whether complete or not? If the footprints were the applicants, why did one of his feet leave no footprint? Why were there so few footprints? What distance separated the footprints? 
Was there anything about them to suggest running, walking, walking quietly, on tiptoes, pausing or standing? Ironically, Justice Callanan appears in some respects to have followed the method of reasoning criticised by Fisher as flawed in Justice Binney's report. As he considered some of the issues brought up by David, Callanan applied the balance of probabilities test to them singly rather than waiting to the end as Fisher would have recommended. For instance, Justice Callanan ruled David had failed the test on his claims he could not have worn the green jersey worn by the shooter, that marks on Robin's fingers were the result of him handling the rifle's magazine, and that he, David, did not have the opportunity to shoot the family. At the end of his report, Justice Callanan said, In the fictional murder mysteries that Mr Robin Bain was reading before his death, all of the ends are tied and the crimes elegantly solved. People in real life and the courts that adjudicate upon conflicting facts know that all of the questions cannot always be answered and all of the issues neatly resolved. This is such a case. Addressing the sole question that I am asked and confining myself strictly to it, my answer is that the applicant has not proved on the balance of probabilities that he did not kill his siblings and his parents on the morning of the 20th of June 1994. The Bain camp threatened legal action challenging the compensation process, and in August 2016, Amy Adams settled the dispute with a $925,000 payment to David Bain. The Crown has agreed to make an ex gratia payment of $925,000 in recognition of the time involved and expenses incurred by Mr Bain during the compensation process and the desirability of avoiding further litigation. This postscript episode would not be complete without mentioning we have not heard from David Bain after the launch of Black Hands. We are still hoping to speak to him about some of the questions arising from the series. And so, not unexpectedly, the debate goes on. It's important to note that this is not just an intellectual exercise for lawyers and journalists. Five people died in horrific circumstances, and their memory needs to be respected by continuing to ask questions. Justice Binney rather unkindly compares me to Inspector Javier from Victor Hugo's novel Les Miserables. According to the Wikipedia entry, Victor Hugo depicts Javert as a character who is not simply villainous, but rather tragic in his misguided and self-destructive pursuit of justice. Reflective thought is an uncommon thing for him and singularly painful. And to quote Hugo, His mental attitude was compounded of two very simple principles, admirable in themselves, but which, by carrying them to extremes, he made almost evil, respect for authority and hatred of revolt against it. It could be that I am a tragic figure in this controversy, but if I am, I'm not on my own. And perhaps Justice Binney missed the point that Javier was ultimately right about a central issue in the novel. I'm Martin Van Bainen. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a joint stuff in Tandem Studios production. Written and presented by Martin Van Bainen, audio engineered and co-produced by Brett Robertson and produced by Dave Dunlay and Kamala Heyman. Podcasts like this one take a lot of time and resources to create. 
To help cover some of those costs, you'll hear some ads during this episode. For an ad-free experience, click the link in the description and you'll get access to this and three other Stuff True Crime podcasts ad-free for about the price of a cup of coffee. And you'll be helping us make more great podcasts like this one. A man disappears and a woman goes to prison for 15 years for his murder, despite swearing she'd never even met him. Gone Fishing. Listen for free in Apple and Spotify now. Search for Gone Fishing.